the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, Mass Market Paradise Threatened by Army of Matches, ebook Stealth Angel Army, Come Forth. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. This time we talk with Eric Flint about his new Ring of Fire series entry, 1637, The Polish Maelstrom. This is a solo novel from Eric that is all about his dowdy West Virginians thrust back in time who are now involved in trying to liberate Poland from its horrible oligarchs or at least prevent a terrible pogrom of Jews that's slated for 15 years in the future. And we also find out what happens between the Turks and the Austrians and the uptimers at that Siege of Linz from the last book. So that's coming up. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's great high fantasy novel, Son of the Black Sword. Now here's the news. The April mass markets are at booksellers everywhere. These include Neo Genesis by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. At the edge of deep space, a newly awakened artificial intelligence may well have power to destroy universes. There are those who wish to exploit it and those that wish to help it. The question is, who will get to it first? Also out in April is Fleet Insurgent by Susan R. Matthews. Collected for the first time, here is the complete under-jurisdiction corpus falling outside of Matthews' celebrated novels that are stories of Andrew Kosciuszko's few good men who will one day bring down the totalitarian star empire of the jurisdiction if only they can escape being ground under the very oppression they fight. And finally out now in mass market is Chain of Command by Frank Chadwick. Lieutenant Sam Bitka is getting used to civilian life when he's called back to active duty. His tensions between Earth and the alien Viroki are on the rise and Sam is dispatched to the distant world of Katak to protect human colonists. But when the Viroki launch a crippling surprise attack against the Earth Coalition fleet, Sam must step up and rise to the challenge of command. Mass Market Paperback Editions of Chain of Command by Frank Chadwick, Fleet Insurgent by Susan R. Matthews, and Neogenesis by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller are all now available at booksellers everywhere. I want to welcome Eric Flint back to the podcast. Hey, Eric. Hi. Great to have you back again. And this time we're going to talk about um, a solo Ring of Fire novel. Eric Flint is a modern master of alternate history fiction with over 3 million, really it's science fiction, over 3 million books in print. He's the author creator of the multiple New York Times bestselling Ring of Fire series, starting with the uh, first novel, 1632. David Drake, he wrote the popular Belisarius alternate Roman history series and some others with David. But David Weber collaborated on 1633 and 1634, the Baltic War and the Ring of Fire series, and on three novels in the Honorverse, such as Cauldron of Ghosts. Um, Eric's latest Ring of Fire novel, before the one we're going to talk about, uh, the latest solo one is 1636, The Ottoman Onslaught, and if I'm not mistaken, this is the direct sequel to that. Uh, Eric was for many years a labor union activist, and he lives 
near and there's a labor union activist character in this book that's pretty uh, prominent by the way i wanted to ask you about that uh, he lives near chicago in uh in indiana though <laughs> out there in the old steel mill district um is it still the rust belt or are things popping back up there eric uh i <laughs> You know, I always thought the term Rust Belt was kind of silly. Um, But uh, this area, the industry never sagged here. What happened was, uh, honestly, for all they talk about trade, what really hammers jobs is is automation, not trade. And... This is now the largest steel-producing center in the United States since Pittsburgh steel collapsed. uh, uh, Well, I should steel collapsed in Pittsburgh. And uh, all the steel mills that are still running are still making as much steel as they ever did, but they use maybe 20% of the workforce. Um, So what's rusty is not the factories, what's can get run down. It's not rust or, you know, the the neighborhoods around it because, you know, there just aren't as many jobs as there used to be. People get laid off from steel jobs and get jobs working at casinos, which pay maybe half as much. Um, but it's really automation, does it? It's not, uh, it's not trade. Yeah. Well, the, uh, I just, um, uh, you know, I buy my hometown area is Birmingham, Alabama. And, um, that that pretty much got wiped out for a while, and then it then it had a little bit of a renaissance. Um, it, the heavy industry, as well as the of course the the big healthcare change there, it's completely changed the economy there. Yeah, I lived in Birmingham for nine months back in nineteen seventy nine. I was working. Uh, I was working steel. Well, it was a machine shop. It wasn't steel production. Um, yeah, I was there. It's a pretty. It's a pretty city. Um, yeah. My granddaddy was uh, my granddaddy worked at U.S. Pipe and U.S. Steel and in the coal mines there. It's a lot of coal mining around Birmingham. Yeah. yeah. Well, there used to be. Yeah. You got in a fight there. You got in a fight there in Birmingham once, didn't you? Well, I'd hardly call it a fight, but that uh, <laughs> was really heavily outnumbered. It's uh, you know like twenty to one. That's hardly a fight, but uh, yeah. Yeah, I made the, the news and everything else. I ran for city council right after it, um, just to thumb my nose at the Ku Klux Klan. But um, I got 800 votes, uh, which I thought was pretty good. <laughs> anyway. That is pretty good. Okay, well, let's talk about uh, 1637, the Polish Maelstrom, which is out now at Booksellers Everywhere by Eric Flint. Um, can you maybe just bring us up to... Where we, what happened in Ottoman onslaught, and where did that leave us, and where are we here in 1637? Uh, well, the main developments in the Ottoman onslaught were the Ottoman Empire um, invaded Austria, and uh, as it had done twice before, uh, well, in real history it did it twice, uh, under Suleiman the Magnificent in the 1500s, and then again um toward the end of 1684, um, which is about 50 years after my period that I'm writing about. 
the they got as far as Vienna. They besieged Vienna both times. The siege was beaten off. Um, what happens in in Ottoman onslaught is the uh, uh, the Ottomans do it. Uh, only this time they succeed um, because they've been secretly building a lot of I call them modern weapons. They're weapons patterned off of things that uh, they picked up from the Americans that came through the uh, Ring of Fire. So they have airships. They managed to build some small some tanks, uh, and they take Vienna in the Ottoman onslaught, and uh, then they keep moving on. They're trying to take all of Austria, but the Austrian uh, court. Um, the emperor and his, his entourage, they uh, retreat into Linz, a city in what's today uh, northwestern Austria. And they set up a stronghold there. And at that point, the United States of Europe comes to their aid. And, and a lot of the uh, the Ottomans lay siege to Linz, but they don't succeed in taking Linz. Um, and... There's a lot of action in this and that and the other thing. That's and then in addition to that the other main line uh that's happening in that book is developments in Poland, particularly in uh what's called Lower Silesia, which um is today southwestern Poland. In those days it was uh Silesia was uh, kind of a multi ethnic area that at different times was ruled by Poland, uh, the Czechs, the Austrians, and, and so forth. But in any event, they, uh, uh, the United States of Europe, uh, Gretchen Richter in particular, is now the, uh, was then the uh, Chancellor of Saxony, invades with a small army and takes Silesia. And that's where Ottoman onslaught pretty much ends. Um, and with the Austrians beaten off at Linz and with uh, uh, Gretchen Richter and the people around her having taken Silesia. So that's where it ends. And um, the Polish maelstrom begins right following that, but it's mostly concentrated in Poland because the um, um, the, the one part of, of what happens in Vienna is um, um, there were some... Um, people in hiding who didn't get out of the city and uh, some of the um, characters in, in the series are, are in hiding in cellars uh, underneath an annex to the uh, royal palace and they're left there at the end of Ottoman onslaught um, and so uh, there's a rescue attempt mounted uh, uh, to try to get them out and that happens and is depicted in Polish maelstrom but um not much takes place in the siege, because one of the things I try to avoid, sieges are just intrinsically kind of boring to write about. So it's all very exciting to get a point where the siege settles in, which is what I did in Ottoman Onslaught, but I don't want to spend much time on it in Polish Maelstrom. So uh, Mike Stearns, who's the major hero in the whole series, he actually doesn't have a lot to do in this book, although he has some adventures of his own, but... He winds up uh, with his wife, Rebecca, going to Italy to uh, negotiate with the uh, a man named Fakhar al-Din, who was the emir of, uh, he was the leader of the Druze in the area which today, uh, the Levant, around Lebanon. And 
Mike has an idea to launch a second front by uh, uh, by essentially taking Lebanon in alliance with the Druze. So he's on. Mm-hmm. And Lebanon is controlled by the Ottoman. Right. Okay, That's so that's who they're against. Control, yeah. The Ottomans control all of what we think goes in the Near East all the way to uh, uh, not not Persia, not what today is Iran, but they control all the rest of it uh, in Egypt and down into Arabia. So that's all under Ottoman sovereignty. Uh, and his idea is to land his third division in Beirut, actually, and, and in alliance with the Druze, and possibly the Maronite Christians, to set up a stronghold there. It doesn't happen in this book. He's just um, doing the negotiations. He can get it done, and he has various adventures in Italy. But the big focus of the book is on Poland and what happens with uh, the, the people who get there in Silesia, plus there's another storyline that I actually started writing about many years ago and I broke off because I realized I was getting ahead of myself and that's rolled into the form of a prologue to this book. Yeah, that, all right, so we start the book with Mo- Morris Roth um, and his wife and they're talking uh, to uh, Albert Wallenstein, of all people, in, and they're in Prague, right? What is this about? What this is about... The, the book's mainly a sequel to Polish Maelstrom, but as is true with, now with books in this series, they, it, they tend to be sequels to several different stories. And there's a storyline goes all the way back to uh, the first Ring of Fire anthology, which I, uh, it's a short novel I wrote called The Wallenstein Gambit, where uh, Morris, Morris and Judith Roth, who are uh, the only two Jews living in Grantville, uh, move to Prague because um, uh, what he knows is that what's scheduled historically, so to speak, what did happen in real history um, in the year 1648, so that's uh, 15 years in the future, is what was probably the worst um, pogrom against Jews in in history except for the Holocaust. And it took place in in Poland and, and, uh, and what today is the Ukraine. And what happened was the Cossacks rebelled against the Poles, led by a man named uh, Bogdan Shmilniki. And the Cossacks led a big peasant uprising. And a lot of their fury was targeted on the Jews who lived there. And the reason was because some of the Jews, not most of them, but the the great landowners of Poland and Lithuania used Jews as their... um, as their intermediaries dealing with the uh, their serfs on their huge plantations. They're the ones who collect the taxes and the money and so on and so forth. So when the rebellion started, it was Jews who were targeted, and, and the people were not making any fine distinctions between, you know, Jews who are actually doing this and the great majority. I'm we're just living in cities and shtetls, minding their own business. So Morris is trying to figure out a way he could forestall or prevent this from happening, and, and he figures his best chance is working through Wallenstein, who is now the king of Bohemia and wants to expand eastward. So that storyline kind of sat idle uh, for a while. 
And except I did write episodes of it, but I didn't publish them because I wasn't ready to go there yet. And what happens is those episodes are now published as a prologue. Um, I had originally serialized them on a title, The Anaconda Project, and that was a that magazine, but I stopped the serialization. And now I've, I've, I've cut a lot of it, but I've rewritten some of it and rolled it in. It's now the prologue. So it starts in 1633, actually. Um, Although the novel itself doesn't start till sixteen, uh, late sixteen thirty-six, but you get the background story um, of what Morris was doing uh, with Wallenstein, and then some um, uh, uh, some uh, mercenary cavalrymen who actually appeared in the Bavarian crisis and wound up fleeing Bavaria. So it's to that extent a partial sequel to the Bavarian crisis. Um, yeah. Now wait a minute. Uh, does didn't uh, what's his name? Demercy, uh, the cavalry uh, commander. He doesn't like to be called a mercenary, right? He he objects to being yeah, called yeah, a mercenary. He, he prefers being called a professional soldier. You're right. You're right. Um, yeah. But anyway, he shows up and he winds up commanding uh, the army that Morris organizes on in, uh, in in what today is the Czech Republic. Uh, that winds up marching into what happens in the book is that the Silesians, uh, 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 Gustav Adolf separates uh, Jeff Higgins and his uh, hangman regiment to go to Silesia and help Gretchen his wife. Uh, the, the Bohemians get involved in it, and these revolutionaries and rebels who are depicted early in in the prologue of of the Polish maelstrom wind up being quite successful in Galicia, which is an area... Galicia is mostly in the Ukraine now. Uh, in those days, it was part of the huge Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. And they begin a rebellion uh, that, that gets a lot of steam going in Galicia. And what happens is all of them wind up combined by season Krakow, which is the big city in, in southernmost Poland that was uh, actually still officially the capital of Poland, although the real capital had been moved to Warsaw. And then they get attacked by armies of men, and we go from there. Um, there's a lot of action in it. Um, um, and, you know. So, well, tell us about well, I thought so. Well, tell us about the the situation. Tell us about these Polish Schlachta. Um, why are they so particularly bad as an aristocracy? Well, the problem with the Schlachta was twofold. First, they were huge. Um, Poland had a much larger aristocracy than most countries. The British aristocracy, for instance, is about 3% of the population. Well, in Germany, it was maybe 5%. The Polish uh, aristocracy, which is called the Schlachta, um, was about 10% of the population. I mean, that's a really big percentage. I mean, the United States would be as if we had 33 million aristocrats. Uh, It's huge. Um, And most of them were not. They had the social status, but, you know, they they were often not any better off or any richer than the peasants around them. But they, you know, they had the social status as part of the nobility. 
That was one problem. I mean, just, there were so many of them. And the second problem was they had Poland had the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth. It was a huge country. I mean, it was it was uh, geographically the largest country in Europe, except for Russia. Uh, it covered not only all of today's Poland, Lithuania, and Baltic states, but also most of what today is called the Ukraine. Um, and it, it, they had a, a lot of customs that were quite different than the rest of Europe. For instance, the king was elected. He was not any kind of an absolute monarch. They did have a parliament. It's called the Shem. Um, but the most peculiar institution of Polish development was called the uh, Liberum Vito, which meant that any, any single member of the parliament, of their Congress, could veto any bill. So anything had to be unanimous to get it passed. And this kind of paralyzed them. And as time went on, this is later than my, the period I'm writing in, um, what wound up happening was the, the great powers that surrounded Poland, Russia, Austria, uh, Prussia, were always able to buy off one or another uh, of, of these members of the of the Shem uh, to just veto everything. So the whole kingdom just got completely paralyzed. It hasn't gotten that bad in the period I'm writing about, but it's pretty bad. It's it's a pretty um, ineffective government. Yeah, and the the monarchy could never really they couldn't really establish a strong uh, central government or monarchy as a result of this, right? And and this led to well what happened was this, the, the, this is my vague memory of <laughs> right the, pre the preceding dynasty not the one that's in power during the ring of fire series but it's called the jagalonian dynasty and it ruled for about three centuries and the jagalonians would ally with actually the burghers and in, in the cities and the peasantry against the nobility so they weren't relying on the nobility. I mean, you know, most of their officials are nobles and all that, but they, they, you know, tried to protect the interests of the lower classes, and they had their base of support there. The Jagalonians died out, and they were replaced by a branch of the Vasa dynasty, which is the same dynasty that also ruled Sweet. Gustavus Adolphus was the Vasa. This is a different branch of them, and there was a lot of animosity between the two branches because the ones who now rule Poland felt that they had been illegitimately usurped from their position as the monarchs of Sweden, which was actually pretty true. They were, um, and they're holding a grudge about it, um, and the grudge goes both ways. The Vasas because they were mostly interested in getting Sweden back, they allied with what are called the great magnates, which were the most powerful and richest of the Polish Schlachta. And these magnates were immensely powerful noblemen. They, they would um, have realms that were larger than some countries. They would field their own private armies of several thousand men. Um, so... They were, in many ways, the sort of the real powers in Poland and Lithuania. Um, and it's actually a coalition of them that 
are the main antagonists to our heroes in uh, the Polish maelstrom. It's not the monarchy itself. Um, Poland, yeah. Polish history is fascinating. I, when I started yeah. uh, this series years ago, I really hadn't planned to spend this much time in Poland, but as I got into it and started studying the history, it's just it's a actually fascinating uh, place and country. Uh, so it wound up the Polish events and Polish characters wound up becoming quite prominent in the series. Yeah, it it is, and um, it, things could have gone. It and it's a place where, in this particular time, things could go either way, and you exploit it well. Um, yeah, and, no, they, this was yeah, this was the magistrates are the bad guys. Tell us a little bit this little revolutionary cabal that you uh, put together that uh, with Red and his boys. Um, it seems to be something that might be dear to your heart. Anyway, I like the way you, who, who are these guys and, and what's their project? Um, they have a sort of secret, uh, it's not secret. It's a conspiracy within the larger, they want to use Wallenstein toward their own ends, right? Something like that. It's, you've got three forces involved. You've got, um, Gretchen Richter, and, and basically what is happening is the United States of Europe is just taking Lower Silesia. And, and in fact, it's going to be turned into a province, the United States of Europe, which um, there were plenty of Poles living in Silesia, but it was a mixed population. Uh, there were a, a, a lot of Germans, may have been more Germans than Poles, it's hard to know. Uh, there were Czechs living in the area, there were Jews living in the area. Um, it tended to be the towns were German and the countryside was Polish, but that wasn't absolute, but that was sort of the way it divided up. So there's the Silesians, and our heroine Gretchen Rector has been a major character in the series from the beginning, and her husband Jeff Higgins has also been a major character in the series. And they're active in this. Then there's the, the Czechs under Morris Roth, who have develop their own army, and they're coming into the area. And then there's the third force is this group of revolutionaries that consist of, one of them is an American, Red Seibold, who's a former uh, uh, Union activist in the world that the Americans came from. Um, and he's politically radical. I, I, I modeled after a man I knew in my days of political activism, name I'm going to not pronounce mentioned because it violates privacy, but uh, he was a railroad worker, in his case, not a coal miner, um, and he was very active. He's just quite a bit like the character um, I depict, in, uh, uh, and Red first appears in the Wallace and Gavin. Anyway, there's him, There's and then there's Poles that he's allied with, one of whom, uh, Krzysztof Opolinski, is, comes from a very high-ranked family in the nobility, and He's a radical nobleman, and Poland produced quite a few of those. In fact, one of them, uh, Kazimir Pulaski, participated in the American Revolution, and um, there's there's a great big uh, boulevard in Chicago where I live named after him. Um, yeah, there's a bridge in New York named after him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know. No, it is, uh, so there's members of the Schlachta involved. Uh, the Opolinski is from the very high nobility, and then another one named Jakob Zaborowski, who's from the much lower levels of the, of the Schlachta, and a bunch of others. And they're allied with elements within the Jews. There's a very large Jewish population. 
what's called the Brethren, which were a, a, a group of um, sect, originally sect, um, um, Protestant dissidents uh, who were led by men in Comenius. Uh, eventually, in real history, they, they got driven out of Europe, and they wound up emigrating to the United States and becoming the Moravian Church here in the United States. But they're still active in my period in that area, and they are allied with the revolutionaries, and they put together a serious uh, rebellion in Galicia. Um, but they need allies in order to hold off the onslaught that their share is coming down on them. So they, they form an alliance with the Czechs and with Christian um, Richter and the Silesians. Um, and their goal is is perhaps representative democracy or something like that, something that gets rid of the damn nobles. Well, there's a number of things they want to do, yeah. Um, their goal is eventually, if possible, to take over the whole Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth. In the meantime, they're taking over what's what was then called Lesser Poland. Today, it's Southern Poland and parts of Ukraine. Um, and yeah, and Krakow is in there. And, and Krakow is the city they seize as it becomes their base and their capital. And this is a big deal. Krakow uh, uh, still is a very important city in Poland, but in those days particularly, it was the head of, it was the center of uh, the big Polish, biggest Polish university. It was still officially the capital of Poland, although the real capital had been Warsaw for about 50 years. Um, and they seize it, and the a lot of the book revolves around the issue of can they hold it once they've seized it. Um, it, it uh, so like I, most of the novel takes place in Poland. I mean, that's why it's called the Polish Maelstrom. There are other subplots in it. Uh, one of them involves uh, the aerial combat in, in Linz, involves Julie Sims, uh, who is also featured in, in aerial combat in, in the Ottoman onslaught. That was part one of a two-part interview with Eric Flint talking about Polish Maelstrom. Part two will be available next time on the podcast. Now we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa, book one in the saga of the Forgotten Warrior. After the War of the Gods, the demons were cast out and fell to the world. Mankind was nearly eradicated by the seemingly unstoppable beasts. Until the gods sent the great hero Ram Rowan to save them, he united the tribes, gave them magic, and drove the demons into the sea. But as centuries passed, the descendants of the great hero grew in number and power. They became tyrannical and cruel, and their religion nothing but an excuse for greed. The people rose up, and the surviving royalty and their priests were made castless, condemned to live as untouchables. The age of law had begun. Ashok Vidal has been chosen by a powerful ancient weapon to be its bearer. He is a protector, a member of an ancient military order of roving law enforcers. No one is more merciless in rooting out those who secretly practice the old ways as Ashok. But Ashok isn't who he thinks he is. And when he finds himself on the wrong side of the law, 
The consequences lead to rebellion, war, and perhaps transformation. Now here is the latest entry in Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword. Chapter 22 Jagdish drank his beer and thought about his latest shame. Both were bitter. The warrior's hall was loud. The air was filled with pipe smoke. Drinks were flowing freely. News had spread quickly. Representatives from the capital had gone to Coldstream to deliver judgment to the disgrace of Vidal. By the time Jagdish had gotten there, wanting only to drink his anger away, all the other warriors were already talking about it, so he'd listened in annoyed silence. It was the masks that came for him. That means he's going to roast on the Inquisitor's dome. Nah, beheading. But no axe. They'll use a wood saw, slow and squirting and kicking. I heard that's how they do it in Vulcan. And the Grand Inquisitors from House Vulcan. You're a moron. Harter won't allow that. Not honourable enough. With our luck, they'll send a whole Paltan to fight the Blackheart. Make it a nice and proper bearer's death they can write songs about. The Arbiters will probably sell tickets. They wouldn't do that. Would they? Oceans, Nayak, they'd gladly spend fifty of us to wrap this mess up. In a generation, there'll be a play about it in the capital. The tragic final scene will be the actors playing us, getting cut to pieces so the bearer can have a right honourable enough death. That warrior was fairly drunk by this point. I bet the actor playing Harter will deliver a fine speech. Knee deep in the paint supposed to be our blood. What do you think, Jagdish? Of course, they wouldn't leave him alone about it. Oh, no. He'd been there that terrible night. Jagdish had actually fought the Blackheart. Then he'd bravely kept him imprisoned. And Jagdish was the only man who had the balls to command that monster to spar against him. Or at least, that's what many of the Vidal warriors were saying. The ones who thought Jagdish a fool were smart enough to only say it behind his back. Jagdish took his time looking at the many warriors sitting around the long table, and the others who were standing around the edges, all eagerly awaiting his opinion. He'd drawn a crowd. The hall had even quieted down a bit to hear what he had to say. Jagdish poured the last of the beer down his throat. The cheap, watery swill wasn't nearly strong enough tonight. All I know for sure is that's the last of my month's beer allotment. You can have one of my ration, Rosalda, exclaimed one of the youngest, who signaled a slave to bring another pitcher. Maybe being the resident expert wasn't all bad. That was like the eighth, tenth. He couldn't remember, but the soldiers kept them coming, so he wasn't complaining. The pitcher was set in front of him, and Jagdish refilled his mug. I was sent away before I heard. The sentence will probably be announced tomorrow. The younger warriors seemed let down. The veterans were used to never being told anything, but all soldiers liked to guess about how their leadership was going to screw them next. It could be execution, 
or it could be another duel. I just don't know. Bidea threw a bunch of us at him before, and what a mess that turned out, shouted one of the drunks. Then he realized nobody was laughing, and he was catching a few angry glares from his friends. No disrespect, Rizalda. Jagdish just kept drinking, pretending to have not heard. He'd weathered far more insults from far more important people. So, if it's to be a fight, Jagdish, you know him better than anyone, how many of us will they have to toss at the maniac so he can die happy enough for the sword not to break? If the judges rule that way. Jagdish mulled it over. Hmm. Tough question. Honor would demand a sporting duel, and that's hard when there's an ancestor blade involved. Depending on the ground and what we're allowed to bring, pole arms, maybe bows, it'll square up quick, even with him using Angruvadal, our armor, numbers, and reach go a long way. Give us space to maneuver, we'd do better. A close engagement where Ashok could get his back against something solid and only fight a few of us at a time. Tricky. Come on, Jagdish. We all figure if that's how the judges decide, you're probably the man leading the charge. He hadn't thought of that, but he was certainly expendable enough. To make it sure, assuming I'm given fully equipped veterans of the best Vidal has to offer... I'd ask for a paltan. A few mouths fell open. Jagdish knew Ashok's capabilities far better than they did, and he'd just suggested fifty experienced men to give them a fair fight. We might have a chance if I'm allowed archers. Jagdish took another drink. Winning would still be questionable. To minimize casualties, I'd want... Two full paltons at once. A hundred men against one. A Rizalda from another legion had walked up to their table. I do believe this man has had too much to drink. Jagdish looked down at his mug. Sadly, not even close. You don't know what you're dealing with. Anyone who underestimates the black heart is a fool. You might think the stories are exaggerated, but legends exist for a reason. They say he's only a man. Jagdish chuckled and shook his head. Even without the sword in his hand, he's something else. He's evil, agreed one of the drunks. He might fight like a sea demon, but I can't call him evil. But he's not good, either. Ashok simply is Jagdish had been thinking about this for quite some time, so the words seemed to fall out. He's like a weapon disguised as a man. We don't say a blade is good or evil, do we? What it gets used for depends on who is wielding it. Our house loved him until we lost control, and the blade cut us instead. I've seen him spare lives when he didn't have to, and I've seen him try to better warriors who just tried to defeat him. Evil? Not really. No doubt unfeeling, merciless even. 
But at the same time, Ashok is everything our caste should aspire to be. Fearless, unflinching, with a personal code of honor stronger than the law itself. Everyone was staring at him. Damn. Maybe he had drunk too much. The newcomer had taken offense. They may have been of the same rank, but Jagdish had just stepped over a line. Are my ears broken, or is a fellow officer of Great House Vidal paying respects to a castless murderer? Shut your mouth, fish breath. One of Jagdish's more inebriated listeners stood up so fast it knocked over his chair. Or tomorrow you'll be shitting out your teeth. He shoved the newcomer. The other Rizalda pushed him back, knocking the drunken soldier to the floor. Several other warriors around the room leapt to their feet. Their caste was always looking for a good fight. Enough, Jagdish snapped. He'd been dishonored enough for one day. The last thing he needed was for these fools to go about wrecking the warrior's hall on his behalf. Brawls and even knife fights were common here, but his reputation had suffered enough already. Our guest is correct to be offended. I misspoke. The Black Heart is a foul creature, and I look forward to whatever his sentence is, as any of our caste should. To say otherwise would be foolish. No offense was intended. One might question the sanity of a man who trains daily against a killer, but it was still stupid to test his skills. The other Rizalda sized him up, decided he would probably lose, and gave Jagdish a small bow. No offense has been taken. Duel avoided, Jagdish finished off the beer, then shoved the mug across the table. He'd have loved to cut the smug off the other warrior's face, but there was only one man Jagdish wanted to fight right now. I'm going home. I've got either an execution or a battle to prepare for tomorrow. Many of these men had served with him before, and a few were his subordinates from the prison's day watch. They might have had questions for him about his opinion of the prisoner, but they knew to get out of his way. The area outside the hall was much quieter and the air cooler. Jagdish paused beneath the red lanterns to catch his breath. Across the street, a group of soldiers were smoking and lounging in front of a brothel. One of their junior Nayaks had passed out drunk in the gutter. Everywhere else in the city, their caste had to be on their best behavior. But in this district, dignity was quickly forgotten. At least, before abandoning him to visit the pleasure women, the young soldier's companions had rolled him onto his side so he wouldn't drown in his own vomit. Tomorrow, Ashok would probably be dead or beyond his reach, and Jagdish would be deprived of his chance for glory. Other warriors of far higher status would try to take up the sword, and surely Angruvadal would choose one of them long before a low-status nobody like Jagdish had his chance. That wasn't justice. None of them had fought Ashok. None of them had the courage to strive against him every day. Only Jagdish did. But then again, that training made it impossible for him to maintain any illusion of being able to defeat Ashok himself. He felt cheated. But logically, he knew the only thing he was really being cheated of 
was the opportunity to get slaughtered in a lopsided duel. Angry and not exactly sure why, Jagdish walked down the road until he reached the main street through the warrior's district. If he turned north, the road would take him back to his house and his loving wife. If he turned south, the road would take him through the city gates and beyond that was Cold Stream Prison. Jagdish took out his pocket watch. The hand said it was after midnight. The arbiter had commanded him to stay away from the prison until tomorrow. By the letter of the law, it was tomorrow. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com. Thanks to Bain intern Victoria Lambert for editing. And podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And the final edition of tomorrow's newspaper with all the racing results plus an ancient amphora filled with undiscovered Roman pulp science fiction codices. And thanks, praise, and plaudits for Eric Flint, author of 1637, The Polish Maelstrom. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars. 